It's just trying to get feedback if there is demand for what your product is. A lot of people just kind of work in a very siloed environment and spend a lot of time and money and effort to put something together that nobody wanted in the first place. And so if you can kind of like solicit feedback as you go, it can not only give you the reassurance that you're on the right track, but it can also teach you how to pivot if like people like one thing versus another or this one design is getting a ton of likes on Instagram and this one isn't. It's like the more you can get feedback from people at a very early stage, the more you can like fine tune what you're doing to make something that people want. Hi everyone. Welcome back to the Flavor of Fashion podcast. I'm your host, Belle. And this week I'm joined by Steve Nanino, who is a president and co-owner of t-shirt brands, Kid Dangerous and Girl Dangerous. The LA-based brands create unique prints for men, women, and kids that feature zodiac signs, national parks, NASA, and Nashville-inspired designs, to name a few. Their products are featured in retailers like Revolve, Free People, Anthropology, Boot Barn, Tilly's, and REI. The Girl Dangerous brand is all about curating collections through graphic art to support, motivate, inspire, and empower women. In this episode, you'll learn about what goes into creating the perfect graphic tee, the ins and outs of running a t-shirt brand, and the costs that go into making a product, plus how budding brands can attract the attention of big retailers and begin to build relationships with them in the fashion business. We also talk about design exclusivity, wholesale versus direct-to-consumer, e-commerce, production, licensing, screen printing, trade shows, the challenges of running your own brand and business, the brands work with nonprofit organization LA Family Housing, and so much more. I could not be more excited to share this episode with you. So without further ado, let's get started. Hi, Steve. Welcome to the Flavor of Fashion podcast. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So to start off, I'll have you introduce yourself. So where you're from, your current city, and a little bit of your educational and professional background, as well as your brands. Awesome. Well, my name is Steve Nanino. I am a president, co-owner of Kid Dangerous and Girl Dangerous. Kid Dangerous is a men's and kids brand, and Girl Dangerous is the women's counterpart. I'm originally from Denver, Colorado, and I spent over 20 years in Los Angeles. I went to USC for undergrad and stayed out there. 2007, we started Kid Dangerous and been doing it ever since. So yeah, my background is in business. That's what I got my major for. I started my career in commercial real estate. And then one of my best friends who was one of the co-founders of the brand had this idea, was talking to me about it and seemed just like a really fun outlet that was very different from what I was doing in my current job. So I wanted to be a part of it and always thought it would be kind of like a side hustle, side hobby kind of thing. And it kind of started to gain a lot of momentum. I found that I really enjoyed it. And so in 2008, I quit my job in real estate and just focused on this full time. So now we're here several years later. I am actually curious, did your career in real estate play in at all too? 
working on this brand like did you have a hand in maybe like leasing any space or anything like that or was it just kind of a complete shift it was kind of a complete shift i mean i was in a brokerage it was kind of a sales position sales and marketing so even though different world entirely different people different industry i learned a lot of really good lessons and principles from the people that i worked for about selling about marketing about professionalism about work ethic and you know all that stuff so even though apparel was totally different i felt like it prepared me for what was to come you know in a different way so definitely it's all business so it's all related we'll do some icebreakers and favorites so how do you define the perfect graphic tee that's a tough question if i knew it i'd be like a billionaire but i think that you know it has to fit well i think you got to feel good in it and i think that the graphic needs to resonate with you in one way or another sometimes the most simple graphic tees are the best ones and sometimes the most complicated ones are the worst so it really is just about the vibe of the shirt and if that vibe works for you do you have a current favorite design or collection on the website i think that it's hard i feel like every design is a different child of yours like you've seen these designs being made you've seen them end up in collections you've seen the samples being produced you know and for the most part you like pretty much all of them or else you wouldn't end up making them so it varies i think i got a lot of favorites on the site currently on girl dangerous we have a a collection called camp dangerous which we just recently put up that was a a fun kind of like vintage camp inspired batch of teas that you know a lot of times we get requests from our stores and retailers of like oh we want national parks or we want surf or we want floral and so a lot of times you end up making stuff with them in mind and that collection we just did for ourselves which was fun it's great to accommodate what people want but then it's also fun just to do what you want to so that was kind of an example of designs that we kind of did on our own very cool I was actually curious about the inspiration behind some of those other collections you mentioned like the surf one and the national parks it's it's kind of cool to see that you were working with your retailers and like able to give them collections they're looking for too. Yeah, we try and be like a combination of doing what we want to do creatively, but then also taking in feedback from the stores that we work with. Because ultimately, you know, giving them what they want is part of our job while still making our own stuff that we want to dictate to them, hey, you should buy this. And so usually it's a good combination of the two where they'll order stuff that we made with them in mind. And then they'll order stuff that we made for ourselves that they really like to So, Very cool. And what is your favorite part of running your own business or just running a t-shirt brand in general? When I was in real estate, I really enjoyed my job and learned a lot, but it was kind of like a small list of things that I was doing. You know, it was either marketing the properties we were selling, talking to the buyers, taking tours. And then once it was under contract, trying to close the deal. It's kind of like rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, kind of the same thing. And then so once we started Kid Dangerous, you know, there was just everything under the sun you had to do, whether it was sales or marketing or your own accounting or 
design, management, it really opened up a whole world of creativity that really didn't exist in the industry that I was in before. So I really enjoyed getting to try and dabble in and everything that goes into running a business instead of like just being a salesperson. So I think my favorite part was just getting to experience like everything from the creative to the business to the management to, you know, everything in between. And then how long did it take you to scale your team? You said it was just you and one of your friends at the beginning. How long was it before you started to add on employees and kind of build out the team that you have today? It took a, a really long time. I mean, when we started the company, there was four partners. We eventually added two more people. Over the years, that's numbers gone back down to four. But from 2008 to 2016 or something, it was basically my partner, Brett, and I that were working full time. And then we would work with other people in like a freelance or like a part time basis. So our graphic designers were freelance. We would bring people on to help us, you know, in a part-time capacity, interns, you know, during the summer, things like that, just to try and make things work one way or another. And then I would say in like 2018-ish, we had a few breaks that went our way, allowed us to kind of finally move into like a real office. We were kind of running it out of our house, you know, using vendors that we have that had warehouses to hold our stuff or ship our orders or, you know, things like that. And then that allowed us to kind of like start bringing on a couple of people full time and that kind of grew slowly. So it went from the two of us to maybe four people full time. And then a couple of years later, a couple more and, you know, fast forward to today. And now we have nine full-time people that work for the company and a couple part-time people. So it's been really cool to see how far we've come. But most of the actual growth has actually occurred over the last like three or four years. So it took us a long time to get from there to here. So I am curious about magic too, since that's where I discovered your brand and met Francisco. When did you guys start going to trade shows like magic? Was this, I'm guessing this was your first time at the Nashville one. I know there was only one other year. Yeah, so we actually did the first one too. We've had a long history with trade shows when we first started, you know, way back in 2007. This was really like pre, it's kind of crazy to say, but like pre-social media, pre-online stores, like the only real way to have a brand was to sell wholesale or open your own store pretty much. So when we started the brand, you know, we were going to Project, which is another like sister trade show of Magic. And did that for several years with very mixed results. And then in about 2012, we decided we were going to kind of get out of that space entirely and just kind of focus on trying to land larger, major retailers and not try and do so much of like the boutique kind of business, which is the focus of these trade shows or can be. And then as Girl Dangerous started to take off in 2019, 2020, we started working with a showroom called Coastal Connection that's based in Chicago that handles the Midwest territory for us. And they were, you know, active participants in Magic and they were like, you guys should do it. And then, you know, we started to sign a couple other regional showrooms. And then so we've now done Magic Las Vegas like 
you know, six shows in a row. So for like the past three years, and and now it's become a big part of our business again. And and it's mostly because we have these showrooms that represent us in different parts of the country and they participate in these shows. They have contact lists of all the buyers they're reaching out to. They have appointments they're setting up and they're able to make the shows very active and like successful for us. So you've worked with, I've seen your collections on like Free People, Anthropology, Revolve, REI, and some of these are like exclusive collections. Is that correct? Kind of like what they're looking for for their customer? Those are, yeah, some of the, some of the accounts we work with. So yeah, Free People, Revolve, Anthropology, REI. We also work with Food Barn and probably like 600 plus boutiques. We actually just started working with Tilly's as well, which is exciting and just kind of branching into kind of like a new territory category for us. So yeah, in some cases there's exclusivity on the designs. In some cases we're offering them to multiple stores. It's kind of a little bit on a case by case basis. And so our main thing is to have good relationships with each of the retailers and kind of work with each of them in, in the rhythms that they like to work in. So And then you mentioned at the beginning, you were just doing those kind of like boutique deals and then moved into these bigger retailers. How did you go about building the relationships with these bigger retailers and kind of getting your product in front of them? You know, it's evolved. I think things are different now than they used to be, but, you know, pre-social media where you could kind of create your own buzz and if you were able to build a big following, like you would get noticed pretty quickly. Back in the day, you kind of had to like prove yourself in the boutique market, kind of be around long enough to where the second or third time Bloomingdale sees you at the trade show, now they're going to stop in. Or maybe they've heard about you because they've been doing research, you know, on some of the cool boutiques, what brands are carrying or whatever. So, you know, when we started, you kind of had to prove yourself in the boutique space and then get your opportunity with the majors. And I think to some extent, that's kind of similar to how it is now, although you could kind of like circumvent having to prove yourself in the boutique space if you're able to create, you know, a big social media following, because that's really valuable as well. So when we did it, you know, you kind of had to start here and then move up. That is something I feel like I forget that the bigger retailers do have like representatives that go to these trade shows. And I'm sure you guys are having appointments with them as well. Are there any specific ones that they go to more maybe like magic las vegas or i guess project it kind of depends on the store you know so magic las vegas is a pretty big one there's also like coterie which is in new york which is kind of like a higher end women's contemporary show then there's kind of more niche shows that are like targeting more like outdoor brands so you know you probably have more representation from the REIs of the world and stuff like that there. And so trade shows are a little less popular than they used to be. I think with all the different ways you can seek out new brands. And so it used to be that it was kind of like mandatory that you do these shows to build your business. But now, you know, people are finding brands, stores are finding brands on social media, you know, they're reaching out. That way you you can always do in-person meetings at the retailers offices, which we always historically have found has been the best way to build business with these retailers because 
unlike at a trade show where you have maybe five minutes to say hi, they flip through your shirts and you exchange cards or whatever. If you can get an appointment at Nordstrom and, you know, downtown Seattle, you can actually spend a couple hours with them, maybe take your buyers out to dinner, you know, really establish a connection. So, but yeah, the trade shows are, are still important. And yeah, depending on the type of store or the location of the trade show, it can vary on what buyers show up and which ones don't. Sounds like it's like a starting point for building these relationships and then you kind of do it on your own outside of that. Very cool. Let's talk a little bit about graphic design and social media, which you were just mentioning as well. Do you currently still have contractors for that or is there an in-house team or in-house employee that does graphic design and social media? So Doug Hale is our creative director. He came on board several years ago and he was like our first hire outside of our first full-time hire outside of my partner and I. And now we have him, we have Olivia, who's based in Santa Monica, who is still in school, but works like three days a week. And then we also have a third designer named Federico, who came on board and is full-time as well. So we have two full-time people and one part-time person whose sole focus is graphic design and creating the marketing collateral we need for e-com, email blasts, you know, social. As far as social media goes, we have Missy Barbone, who we've worked with now for probably going on three years now, has been kind of running our social in like a kind of consulting basis for the last couple of years and helps with a lot of the content creation is kind of the, the face of the brand. And how big of a role does social media marketing play in your business? Do you think that these days it's really helping you make sales or build those relationships? Or do you feel like there's other parts of your business that are like bigger money makers, I guess? Yeah, I think we're unique in the sense that we've been around for a long time. And some of the success that we've had has come like the old fashioned way of just kind of like building relationships, building the business, you know, growing kind of with the retailers that we're working with and trying to be the best partner we can be to them with creating art, you know, turning things around really quickly, kind of trying to just be an awesome partner. And that's really kind of been what's built us up. We've historically not had a lot of success building our social media falling. And it's always kind of been an Achilles heel of the company. And, you know, something that we're always trying to improve, but unlike a lot of brands that have started in the last five years that really took off on social media, and that's kind of their origin story, it's always been something that we've been trying to crack the code on. And so we're like 90% wholesale and like 10% direct to consumer e-commerce. And a lot of that has to do with kind of how we started and like how we built our business and truth be told, like some of the challenges we've had to building the business online. So I think we would say that it has less of a role in our company, but not because we intended that, but it's just kind of the reality that we're in. So it is interesting to think about like, if you maybe started your company five years ago or in the past five years, like maybe, I don't know, see how that would be different in terms of getting social media off the ground or something. But I like that you started your business the old fashioned way and built relationships. And 
that's been able to sustain your business, you know, and have like longevity to it. So I think that's really cool to put an emphasis on that as well and not, you know, just solely focusing on social media. Yeah, we'd love for it to be both and we're pushing for it to be both. I think every company has strengths and weaknesses and, you know, our strength is in kind of our ability to execute the business and build relationships and do really well on the wholesale level. And then our weaknesses probably are, you know, social media, content creation, direct to consumer or something. Yeah. I did want to ask you, do you prefer the wholesale model or direct to consumer or are you kind of in the middle? You know, direct to consumer is kind of the goal, like for everybody, mostly because margins are higher. So like when we sell a shirt to free people, you know, we're selling it to them at a wholesale price and then they're retailing it for the full price of what a customer would pay for it. So when you sell a shirt on your own website, you know, you kind of skip the wholesale middleman and you go right to the consumer. So you're always going to make more profit doing direct to consumer. And then there's also kind of a bit of like controlling your own destiny when you have a large e-commerce business. So like when the pandemic hit and there was a lot of, you know, store closures and cancellations and this and that, you know, everyone turned to selling online because that was kind of the only place people could shop. And, you know, for brands for that window of time, it was like the only real source of revenue. And so it really did shed light on the fact that like, if you have a large e-commerce business, then like you're in control of your own destiny. Whereas you could be in wholesale and a couple stores decide they don't want to carry you anymore, or, you know, large chain goes out of business or, you know, your buyer leaves and the new one doesn't like your stuff or, you know, whatever reason, like you're not totally in control. You know, having said that, things have gotten very, very competitive online. People are struggling. Companies are struggling to have like a profitable digital ad strategy on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. Like people are just not making the returns that they want. So in some ways, we take a lot of comfort in our wholesale business because we know we're good at it. We know we have a lot of different retailers that are kind of helping, you know, drive revenue for our company. And we're not subject to like, hey, an iOS 14 update happened and now Instagram ads are in the trash. And now people who built their entire company off of Instagram like are struggling, you know? And so it's kind of like a double-edged sword, but I think the goal is to have a balance of the two. And do you plan on one day like opening a physical retail location or would you prefer to just do online e-commerce sales? We have no plans of opening a store, mostly because of the kind of risk versus reward. That's a very big investment. Financially, you have to staff it. You know, there's a lot of layers that go into it. And so we would rather kind of focus on e-commerce and focus on supporting the brick and mortar stores that carry us. So yeah, it's never been part of our dream. And I also think that, you know, when you have just like a, a line that's focused on graphic tees, it's kind of hard to have a store of all t-shirts. So it would probably require that we went into a lot of other product development, you know, to kind of round out the assortment. So yeah, other categories. We um, did a pop-up store for a month and I had to work it every day. And I was like, I don't like doing this. So <laughs> that, that was a good test. So yeah, definitely understand. 
I was looking at some of the tags on some of the shirts because I was curious what countries you produce in. Do you work with multiple suppliers? I'm wondering if you work with different ones for like girl dangerous versus kid dangerous because I saw a couple different countries. Yeah. yeah, so Girl Dangerous is probably 80% of our overall business now. And so Kid Dangerous is still alive and well. It's just Girl Dangerous has grown so much in the past couple of years. With Girl Dangerous, we work with one factory partner that's based in Guatemala. And we got connected to them several years ago through kind of an acquaintance colleague. And they've done a really tremendous job for us. I was able to go down there and get to meet everybody, tour the facilities, you know, see the fabric mills, see the wash houses, the screen printers and all that stuff. And just know that, you know, they're a great team and they're following all the guidelines that you want to make sure your factories are following when it comes to, you know, ethical manufacturing and all that stuff. So they've done a great job for us. There's like a, a Central American like trade agreement with the United States that if the thread that they use is from the U.S. to make this material in Guatemala. And, and when you bring it back, there are trade and tariff savings, kind of similar to like NAFTA. And so the thread that we use is actually American thread. And then it goes there, gets woven, dyed, cut, sewn, you know, sent back. And through that, there's like a partnership between Central America and the United States to provide some tax incentives. So it's worked really well for us and it's been a great partnership and has really been the backbone of how Girl Dangerous has grown. So very cool. I also know you're involved with LA Family Housing. I didn't see any updated stats on the website. I'm not sure if you have any. A little outdated information on there. Yeah. So probably like five or six years ago now, things were going better and well you know there was a lot of lean years there for our company but we just kind of felt like hey we're in a position where we want to try and do more than just sell t-shirts we want to give back we want to like work with someone in the la area you know and so our employee megan maddox at the time kind of put together a list of some different charities you know causes that were important to us we kind of did some initial reach out we're still a pretty small company so you know some of the bigger organizations there's a lot more red tape to kind of align yourself with them. But LA Family Housing was really open and excited to meet with us. And, you know, homelessness is a huge problem, not only in the U.S., but particularly in California and Los Angeles. And they're really on the front lines of trying to help through like transitional housing, through shelters, through like full-time housing, through, you know, job programs, vocational training, you know, everything in between. And so, we started with just kind of helping participate in events and just volunteering our time. And then, you know, giving away kid shirts at like holiday events for families that are part of the program. And then it kind of became a little bit more official where we just kind of started to make a pledge that we were going to donate a shirt for every shirt that was sold. And so a couple times a year, we will connect with them and try and figure out what their needs are and, you know, Hey, we need more men's or women's or kids or, you know, whatever, and just try and get them what they need and participate in the events. It's been really cool. It's an extra sense of motivation for the team, knowing that, you know, in addition to making cool t-shirts and selling stuff that we're doing a very small part and helping out. So. Yeah, I think that's awesome. And that also you're just involved in the local community where your brand is based. So very cool. 
I also did want to talk a little bit about Kid Dangerous. So Kid Dangerous was always called Kid Dangerous, but it was originally a men's brand, correct? It was Um, men's and women's. Okay. When did you decide to branch out into Girl Dangerous and kind of split off the women's category? And then also, when did you decide? I saw, I think it was 2015, you started making kids t-shirts as well. Yeah. So Kid Dangerous started as a men's and women's brand. And it was always pretty even as far as, you know, the selling. And then we decided to incorporate kids, which really lean towards boys because we're selling crew neck graphic t-shirts and there's more of a market for that for boys than girls, which have more, you know, fashion bodies and, and things like that, even at a young age. So it kind of became this family brand in the sense that there's men's, there's women's, there was kids. And that kind of started to become hard to market, we felt like, where, you know, a lot of the cool women's t-shirt brands were just women's t-shirt brands. And it was kind of, when we're sending out emails, are we targeting men? Are we targeting women? Are we targeting families? You know, and so from that came the idea from one of our employees, Megan Maddox, who I referred to earlier, to kind of make the women's line its own thing and branch it out as Girl Dangerous. And that was a really great idea. It started very slow. Like, you know, it was the baby sister of Kid Dangerous for a good 18 months, but it slowly started to gain momentum. We have two people that we work with, Taylor and Catherine from Common Vice in LA, that have kind of been with the women's brand since day one, even when it was Kid Dangerous. Well, not not since day one, but for, for several years now. And were there kind of at the beginning of the Girl Dangerous transformation, and they were kind of in charge of opening up free people, opening up Revolve, and those accounts really kind of springboarded the brand because you get seen on those sites, other people start to reach out, and it kind of creates some momentum. And so it was definitely the right decision to create something specific and focused versus trying to like kind of be everything to everybody. And so Kid Dangerous remains kids and men, and Girl Dangerous remains exclusively women. I don't know if you want to go in a little bit of detail about some of the new collections I saw in Kid Dangerous. There was a NASA collection, which I thought was really cool. And then you've got your National Parks Wildlife pretty much across the board for summer. I am curious about that NASA collection. For something like that where you're putting you know, another organization's name on it, or for example, I've heard, you know, like doing Disney t-shirts or something like that. Do you have to have some kind of like licensing for that or is it kind of free territory? So there's a huge, huge market in graphic t-shirts built around licensing. And so that's like when you see the ACDC t-shirt or the Coca-Cola t-shirt or the Mickey Mouse t-shirt or whatever, those are all big high dollar value licensing agreements that these companies have to enter with these large entities. So it could be a Star Wars, it could be, you know, Mickey Mouse or the entire Marvel world. And so in those cases, it's a very formal thing of entering into contracts, minimum guarantees, royalty payments, an extensive approval process. And NASA's a unique one because they are like a government entity they have elected that they don't want to participate in any royalty payments. And the only thing that you have to do is have your designs approved. So they have some basic guidelines about the use of their logo, the type of, you know, colors you can use, you know, the introduction of your brand name in relation to NASA that you just have to adhere to. And they have a really simple process of just applying 
submitting your designs, getting approval, and then you're off and running. So it's it's kind of a unique license because anyone can use it and it's free. And so it's a really cool thing to do because of the popularity of NASA in fashion. And it's really a very unique case because there really isn't anybody, any other entity that is that popular that you can do that with. So it was a good opportunity for us to kind of dabble into, you know, something kind of that's part of the bigger mainstream without having the the big commitment from like the licensing perspective. Very cool. And I'm guessing that's the same with the national parks as well, since it is like government owned names, I guess. Yeah, the national parks. So it's a little bit, you know, these are all locations. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we are using the location names in the artwork and focusing really on that. So it'd be like Los Angeles, California. You know, it's like you don't have to pay the you know, city of Los Angeles to put that on a t shirt. But then if you did, Universal Studios, Los Angeles, California, then now all of a sudden you got to talk to Universal Studios. So it's kind of just about focusing on the actual location on the map. And then that's how you're able to do it. So very interesting. Learn about like the licensing and then also stuff that's kind of public domain too. What is the most challenging part of running your own business? There's definitely a lot of challenges. I think the uncertainty of where your business is going. I think you have to have a lot of confidence and faith in yourself and your team and willingness to take risks. You know, it's in many ways easier to just get a job somewhere and work for a larger company and know that your paycheck is going to hit every two weeks and that you get two weeks paid time off and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I think the hardest part is just kind of the uncertainty of, where it's going to go. And I think work-life balance is a challenge as well. You know, for several years, I would work, you know, 70 hours a week, you know, just because I had to. Luckily now with a bigger team and an awesome team, I'm not in that position anymore. But, you know, you hear a lot about entrepreneurs who struggle to find work-life balance and kind of leave their work at work when they go home. So I think probably uncertainty and kind of finding the balance with these other very important parts of your life that don't surround work and and finding the balance between the two. Very understandable. Yeah. Is there anything that you wish you would have known before starting your own business? I think everyone would probably answer that. Yes, there are things that you wish you would have known. Like some people start businesses very analytically, like okay, I'm putting together a business plan. I'm trying to find a hole in a marketplace that like I can fill. Here are the competitive advantages I have against, you know, the other businesses that are already in the space that I'm going to be in. Here's our value add, you know, like it's more of like a business school approach to like starting a business. Ours was the complete opposite. It was more of like this fun, cool, different industry that we wanted to be in. And we weren't thinking about anything that was coming other than just the excitement of putting together this first collection of awesome t-shirts and getting it in kits in as our first account and, you know, and just growing from there. So I think, you know, we were very naive when we started. And so I think maybe, you know, the things that I would have liked to have known are just, you know, the value of putting in the research and the thinking and the analysis 
before starting versus kind of as you go. So I think, you know, the one thing I would have liked to have known is just kind of like the value of putting in the work before to know what you're trying to accomplish versus just like starting and seeing what happens, which is kind of how we did it. <laughs> so, but in in a lot of ways, that was a fun experience to kind of just not know what was coming behind the next door and then just having to try and react the best way possible to each situation. But I think we could have sped up our timeline a little bit more had we been a little bit more, you know, planned and organized and structured before starting. That makes sense. Yeah. Like setting up some kind of foundation, I guess, beforehand or like a business plan or something. Yeah. We had a business plan. It was a pretty good business plan, I think, but we just really didn't know what was coming. So, and and I think there was maybe nothing that could have prepared us for that, but you know, I guess I wish I would have known a little bit more what was coming in year one and year two, but I don't know if, if that's even possible. Yeah. Learn as you go. Do you have any advice or what advice would you give to someone who wants to start either their own t-shirt brand or get started in the fashion industry? I would say that, you know, it's a very kind of competitive world and, you know, there are a lot of resources that exist today that didn't exist when we started. So for example, the old school way to print t-shirts is screen printing still the most cost-effective way, but it requires setup fees and minimums. So if you wanted to start a t-shirt line, even with 12 designs, and you just wanted to make samples to go and try and show people, it could cost you a couple thousand dollars. Today, there are sites like The Printful and several other, you know, kind of on-demand apps that you can plug into a Shopify store where you can like model your graphic on a t-shirt, model your graphic on a coffee mug or a tote bag or, you know, a hat or whatever. And you can basically kind of turn your store on and like, as sales come in, this company on the back end is printing, packing and shipping your orders on demand. And your cost is Next, I mean, you're paying for shirts that have already been sold. You've like mitigated a ton of costs in just making samples and things like that. So I think there's opportunity for like a proof of concept now that's like easier than there used to be, where maybe a proof of concept 15 years ago would have cost you a couple grand. Now a proof of concept could be a couple hundred bucks. And so I would say that, you know, try and get your stuff out there, whether it's even just on social media and you're not even selling it and you're just seeing what kind of likes and comments you can get or setting up one of these kind of on-demand shops. If you can do that, if you're doing graphic t-shirts, it's a little more complicated than that. And like, you know, the cut and sew, you know, making dresses or sweaters or things like that there, you kind of have to make it, but it's just trying to get feedback. If there is demand for what your product is, a lot of people just kind of work in a very siloed environment and spend a lot of time and money and effort to put something together that nobody wanted in the first place. And so if you can kind of like solicit feedback as you go, it can not only give you the reassurance that you're on the right track, but it can also teach you how to pivot. If like people like one thing versus another, or this one design 
is getting a ton of likes on Instagram and this one isn't, it's like the more you can get feedback from people at a very early stage, the more you can like fine tune what you're doing to make something that people want. Yeah. I like the idea of you're saying like testing the market so you don't end up with a bunch of extra inventory, which is just money lost. I am curious. I had one last question about e-commerce. I know you have your accounts, so you're placing orders for those accounts for however much they order. But in terms of e-commerce, how do you decide how much you're going to order of each SKU? I'm sure you're much more familiar now with your target market, so you kind of know what they're going to want. But how do you go about that? We have kind of a unique business model because when we're making orders for our large retailers, they're made completely out of our hands. You know, they're being made in Guatemala or we'll work with local screen printers in LA. For our online store, we actually, in our office in downtown LA, we have four digital t-shirt printers that basically go from computer file to print. And so you can literally print a hundred different designs on a hundred different shirts in one day. So we run our e-commerce business predominantly as a on-demand business. So we keep the blanks in stock. And then when an order comes in, we pull the blank, we print it, we pack it, we ship it. And so while it's technically more cost-effective to produce in bulk, you can really run into problems with inventory that people don't want or that you don't want or that people aren't buying that can end up killing whatever profit you're going to make on the shirts that you sold. So we will make a little less per shirt, but have the flexibility of knowing that like we're not married to any one design. And if something does better than others, then we focus on that and no harm, no foul. People aren't buying it. We're not sitting on inventory. So that's worked really well for us. It's also allowed us to be really flexible when it comes to making samples for trade shows, when it comes to rush requests from retailers, like having that ability to print in-house really is like the foundation for like how we built the business that is being done outside. That's a cool cost-effective strategy. And I like that it's like sustainable as well because you're printing to order for e-commerce. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's all done in, in downtown LA. We have four team members, Francisco, Jessica, Brett, and Leslie, who do an amazing job running that business. And, you know, we wouldn't be here without them. So. And my last question is just for fun. I don't know whether you want to do LA or Denver, either or any recommendations that you have for listeners or visitors, whether it's restaurants, brands, things to see. Just anything you want to recommend? I'll do LA because I miss it a lot. So one of my favorite things about LA is the proximity to other places. So like, you know, on any given weekend, you could go out to the desert in Palm Springs and have an amazing time there at a pool with palm trees and sand and 110 degree heat. Or you could head north and be in the Santa Barbara area. Our favorite little place in all of Southern California is like the solving of Los Olivos area. It's this like mini Napa Valley that exists about an hour and 45 minutes north of LA that seems like you're in a completely different world than the hustle and bustle of LA. Tons of really cool wineries, towns, restaurants, shops that you can go to. And then, yeah, and then I, I lived for 15 years in Silver Lake. So some of my favorite places to eat down there would be 
song night markets it's amazing thai restaurants sunset junction area is just a fun little area to just kind of get dropped off at there's several bars and restaurants and shops you can just kind of bounce around have a drink have a bite and just kind of have a really cool afternoon yeah there's so many places there that i miss i can make a list of 100 food places but then you know the podcast would be two hours so (laughs) (laughs) no worries yeah i definitely miss silver lake echo park area too there's a lot of good food and i love just like walking around echo park lake too i miss that for sure yeah Definitely. You know, LA is a wonderful place. And, you know, I wish, I wish I could kind of be in both places at once. So yeah, definitely understand. It's also cool because I've interviewed several different people from LA because a lot of them are like my connections from school and everybody has kind of different recommendations. So it's fun to hear what different people like about LA. Yeah. And how can listeners find you? I don't know if you want to plug like LinkedIn or any of that stuff, but, or you can do Kid Dangerous, Girl Dangerous, your Instagram. Yeah. So our websites are kiddangerous.com, girldangerous.com. We have hello emails on both websites. You know, you can send in any inquiries. I can be found on LinkedIn. Steve Nanino is my name. I know you can find me because I get solicited by dozens of marketing companies every single day with my info sold there (laughs) yeah instagram handles are kid dangerous at kid dangerous all one word for kid dangerous and then girl dangerous is at girl dot dangerous la so girl dot dangerous la and so we are a small company, you know, we're always one degree of separation away from anyone that reaches out through social or through the emails. So, you know, feel free to reach out, you know, if anything, you want to learn anything more about the conversation we had, or just, you know, get a promo code or learn more about either of the brands. So. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed chatting. With yeah. You. Thank you so much. And yeah, just keep me posted. I can't wait to, to hear the episode when it drops. Thank you so much to Steve for joining me on this week's episode. I really enjoyed chatting with him about Girl Dangerous and Kid Dangerous. I hope you learned a thing or two about creating the perfect graphic tee, as well as building relationships in the fashion industry and what goes into running a successful t-shirt business. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the links for Steve, Girl Dangerous, and Kid Dangerous, including anything we mentioned in this episode, as well as Steve's Southern California and LA recommendations. Follow Girl Dangerous and Kid Dangerous on Instagram to stay up to date with all their cool new designs. You can also go to their website and subscribe to their email list for a special discount code, or check out some of their exclusive collections on Revolve, Free People, Anthropology, Tilly's, Boot Barn, and REI's websites. Be sure to follow Flavor of Fashion on Instagram at Flavor of Fashion Podcast. And if you like this episode, please leave us a review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can also click the bell to be notified when new episodes are released. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed, and I'll see you next week for another taste of the world of fashion. Bye, guys.